directly to one of his films. He was also fascinated by recording equipment, stereo test records, sound effects and racing cars in various combinations, all interests which I inherited. However, there was some hint of musical heritage within the family. My maternal grandfather, Walter Kershaw, played in a banjo band with his four brothers and had a piece of music published called The Grand State March. My mother Sally was a competent pianist whose repertoire included Debussy's now extremely politically incorrect Gollywog's Cakewalk. The selection of 78s at home was even more eclectic, including classical pieces, communist workers' songs performed by the Red Army Choir, the Teddy Bear's Picnic and the Laughing Policeman. Doubtless traces of these influences can be found somewhere in our music. I shall leave it to others more energetic to winkle them out. I must have been about 12 when rock music first impinged on my consciousness. I can remember struggling to stay awake through Horace Batchelor's exhortations for his unlikely pool system on Radio Luxembourg, hoping to catch Rocking to Dreamland. I helped Bill Haley's See You Later Alligator reach the UK top ten in March 1956 by buying it on a 78 from the local electrical store, and later that year I splashed out on Elvis Presley's Don't Be Cruel. At 13 I had my first long-playing album, Elvis's Rock and Roll. This seminal album was bought as a first LP by at least two other members of the Floyd and almost all of our generation of rock musicians. Not only was this fantastic new music, but for a teenage rebel it also had the additional frisson of receiving the kind of parental welcome usually reserved for a pet spider. Within a couple of years I'd gravitated towards a group of friends from the neighbourhood who had also discovered rock and roll, and it seemed an excellent idea to put a band together. The fact that none of us knew how to play was only a minor setback since we didn't have any instruments. Consequently, allocating who played what was something of a lottery. My only link with drumming was that Wayne Minow, a journalist friend of my parents, had once bought me a pair of wire brushes. After the failure of some early piano and violin lessons, this seemed a perfectly legitimate reason to become a drummer. My first kit, acquired from Chazzy Foot of Denman Street in Soho, included a gigster bass drum, a snare drum of indeterminate age and parentage, hi-hat, cymbals and an instruction book on the mysteries of flam paradiddles and ratamacues, which I am still attempting to unravel. Equipped with this devastating armoury, I joined my friends to form the Hot Rods. This group never really developed beyond endless versions of the theme from the TV show Peter Gunn, and my career in music seemed destined to falter, but I had now gone from prep school to Frencham Heights, an independent co-ed school in Surrey. Here there were girls. I met my first wife, Lindy, there. A jazz club, and you could wear long trousers after the third form. Yes, this was the sophisticated life I'd been looking for. After leaving Frencham Heights and following a year in London spent improving my studies, I arrived at the Regent Street Poly in September 1962. I studied a bit, produced various pieces of work for my portfolio and attended numerous lectures. I did, however, show serious application in attempting to cultivate the correct look, with a penchant for corduroy jackets and duffel coats. I also tried smoking a pipe. It was some time during my second term at college that I fell in with what the older generation used to call a bad lot, namely Roger. Our first abortive conversation about the Austin chummy had perhaps surprisingly led to a growing friendship, based on shared musical tastes. Roger's musical activities were not particularly different from any other teenagers at the time. A bit of guitar strumming, picking up riffs and ideas from old blues records. Like me, he was an avid listener to Radio Luxembourg 
as well as the American Forces Network. When he came down to college in London, his guitar travelled with him. An early indication of putting our training to good use was the way he had used Letraset, then a specialist design tool, to print, I believe to my soul, on the body of the guitar. To our eyes, it looked pretty smart. Along with his guitar, Roger packed a particular attitude. Like a few of the others in the class, he had already had a few months' experience working in an architectural office before arriving at college. This had given him a slightly more sophisticated view of where all this training might lead, and he sported an expression of scorn for most of the rest of us, which I think even the staff found off-putting. I have few clear memories of Rick at this juncture, and he can't do much better. My impressions of Rick at college are of someone quiet, introverted, with a circle of friends outside the poly. I think he realised as soon as he arrived at college that architecture was not for him. According to Rick, this was a totally arbitrary choice suggested by a careers master, but it took the poly a full year to arrive at the same conclusion. Once both parties reached this mutual understanding, Rick left to seek an alternative route, ending up at the London College of Music. Rick had played trumpet as a schoolboy, and maintains that he played the piano before he could walk. But then he adds that he didn't walk until he was ten. In fact, it was a broken leg at twelve years old, with two months spent in bed that left him with a guitar for company but no tutor. Rick taught himself to play using his own fingering, and later, encouraged by his mother Daisy, used the same approach for the piano. This teach-yourself method produced Rick's unique sound and style, and probably prevented him from ever making a living as a professor of technique at a conservatoire. After a brief flirtation with Skiffle, Rick had succumbed to a trad jazz influence, playing the trombone, saxophone and piano. I'm sorry to say that he also confessed to using a bowler hat as a mute for the trombone. In our first year, Rick, Roger and I all found ourselves in a band constructed by Clive Metcalf, another poly student, who played in a duo with Keith Noble, one of our classmates. This first poly band, the Sigma Six, consisted of Clive and Keith, Roger, myself and Rick, with Keith's sister Sheila occasionally helping out on vocals. Rick's position was a little tenuous since he had no electric keyboard. He would play if a pub venue had a piano, but without any amplification it was unlikely anyone could hear him over the drums and the Vox AC30s. If no piano were available, he would threaten to bring along his trombone. Rick's girlfriend and later wife Juliet was more a guest artist, with a repertoire of various blues pieces including Summertime and Careless Love that she sang particularly well. Juliet, who'd been studying modern languages at the Poly, left for university in Brighton at the end of the first year, at the same time as Rick went on to the London College of Music. However, by then we had found enough in common musically to continue our friendship. I think the band stabilised around the worse rather than the better players. At this point, Roger was designated rhythm guitarist. He was only relegated to bass later when a refusal to spend the extra money for an electric guitar combined with Sid Barrett's arrival, forced him to take a more lowly position. As he later remarked, Thank God I wasn't pushed down to the drum kit. I have to agree with that sentiment. If Roger was drumming, I suppose I'd have ended up as the roadie. By the start of our second year as students in September 1963, Clive and Keith had decided to strike out on their own as a duo, and so the next version of the band began to coalesce around a house owned by Mike Leonard. 
Mike, then in his mid-thirties, was a part-time tutor at the Poly, who, in addition to a love of architecture, was fascinated by ethnic percussion and the interplay between rhythm, movement and light, which he enthused about during his lectures. In September 1963, Mike acquired a house in North London and wanted some tenants to provide him with rent income. Mike also needed some part-time help in his office, where his work adding toilet accommodation to schools for the London County Council enabled him to finance the design and building of the light machines he was constructing at home. These used perforated metal or glass discs with perspex elements rotated by electric motors to throw out patterns of light onto a wall. Mike's suggestion that we become his tenants seemed an ideal arrangement, so Roger and I moved in. Over the next three years, Rick, Sid and various other acquaintances all lived there at different periods. Stand-up gardens made a real difference to our musical activities. We had our own permanent rehearsal facility, thanks to an indulgent landlord. Indeed, we used the name Leonard's Lodgers for a while. Rehearsals took place in the front room of the flat where all the equipment was permanently set up. Unfortunately, this made any study very difficult and sleep almost out of the question, since it was also Roger's and my bedroom. The next really significant change in our fortunes was the arrival at Stanhope Gardens of Bob Close in September 1964. Bob, like Roger, a product of Cambridgeshire High School for Boys, came to London with Sid Barrett and enrolled in the architectural school two years below us. Bob's reputation as a guitar player was well known and much deserved. With Bob, we felt musically more confident, but as Keith Noble and Clive Metcalf had both left the poly and the band, we were desperate for a vocalist. The Cambridge connection worked again, and Bob supplied us with Chris Dennis. Chris was an RAF dental assistant stationed at Northolt. He owned a Vox PA system consisting of two columns and a separate amplifier with individual channels for the microphone.